Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to illuminate this text to us this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before You now. Lord, we know that throughout the ages, You have revealed Yourself to men and that You have called a body of men to write down the very words of God. And Lord, we have before us that text which You have faithfully seen, protected, and allowed to come into our hands, even in our own language. Lord, would You use Your Word this morning? Would Your Spirit be poured out in great measure in our midst? Would Your Son speak and preach even this morning to His people? Lord, would You be delighted as You have for years, for generations, for millennia, to speak to people the very words of God, that we might have life and we might have it abundantly. Would you do so this morning, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 19. This is God's Word. Let's give attention to it. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we consider this passage this morning, I want us to think about several things. One is is that if you remember back in verse 1, Paul said, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, and then launches into the next verses because his mind has been caught up and he wants to, once again, remind them of the realities of what God has done in him and through him because of Christ, because of God's great love, Because of the working of God's power, he wants them to once again see this reality. And now he begins to say, okay, this is what was on my mind. And all these things I've told you, I now come to part of the point, not the whole point. The rest of the point we won't get to until we get into the first verse of chapter 4 and beyond. But he now says, for this reason, I bend my knees. I bow my knees before the Father. And here's what I want you to begin to think about. The standard posture of Jewish prayer, and indeed in early Christianity, was to stand. Many times to stand and lift your hands. If you ever wonder why I stand and lift my hands, that is the posture of the early church. To stand and lift your hands towards heaven and to pray to God. And so it is significant in this passage that Paul does not say, I stand and lift my hands to you, 
O great God, and ask you, he rather takes a posture of deep humility and earnestness. And that's significant. Because as I thought about this passage, what I kept being drawn back to was a garden where the second person of Godhead in human form also flung himself down on his knees and with great humility and earnestness sought the Father. Now, we need to see that kind of earnestness in Paul as he prays this prayer. And if we can grapple with that earnestness that he has, he's fallen on his knees and said, Father, I come before you on bended knee to beseech you about these matters. Then you start to get the power and, and the real earnestness in which Paul seeks the well-being of the church throughout Asia Minor of which this letter is being written to. This should also provoke us to ask this question, what is so important that Paul has to get on bended knee? What is he praying that's so significant that it requires him, it, it not only requires him, he's compelled onto his knees. What is going on here that he's thinking about? And so I want us to consider three points this morning that hopefully begin to unpack what's happening in this prayer that Paul's praying. And my real hope is for some of us that we will begin to take on these prayers and pray it for ourselves and for one another. Not just for the concerns of mothers and fathers, of our health, of tests, and those kind of things. But we actually begin to pray what I would consider the more significant eternal matters of what's happening in our lives which equip us and enable us to care and deal with those other matters. It's not to say that these other things are trivial or not significant. It's rather to say that these things Paul is praying for are of more gravity and actually have effect in those other concerns. The first thing I want you to look in is he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul tells us that he bends his knee before the great Father and King of every family. Now commentators abound as to what to do with that phraseology. They certainly don't have any problem understanding what he means by bending the knee before the Father. They certainly understand in the Old Testament that God is viewed as the great Father King, this, this great one. And so as Paul comes into the throne room, if you will, of heaven, he bends the knee to the great King. But notice that he uses a name, a nomenclature, a father. Because there's this personal, connected relationship with him. But even in that connected, intimate relationship, he's still compelled to drop to his knees. But the matter of every family has created its own set of problems. Because people go, well, surely he doesn't mean that God is the father of every body. And so people have tried to make that Greek language do something different. So some of your translations, if you're dealing with the NIV, it will say the whole family. Because it's trying to get at this idea of it's the whole family of all those who are elect or saved. But I don't think that's what Paul is after here. And even though I respect many of the commentators who would go that direction, I really think the Greek language is saying exactly what Paul wants it to say. That every family owes its allegiance 
to the Creator of all of creation. Some commentators even want us to draw the understanding that this is actually not just looking at human beings. It's talking about the family of the angelic host as well, of which there are both fallen and unfallen. And I believe that's exactly what, if we think about what Paul's been saying all along, this cosmic reality of Christ, this whole reign over all of creation that Paul has been discussing, that Christ has, what he's saying here is this reality, that... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth. The reality is is that Christ is in the heavenlies ruling over all things and on earth and that everything created, everything created owes its allegiance to God. If you think of this in the terms of Philippians or in Isaiah 45, 23, I believe is the verse where God basically speaks and says, I will continue to do these things until every knee is bent before me. Christ has been lifted up so that every knee will bow. Why? Because He is the great God and King. No knee will be left. And so the reality here that Paul is seeking to get to is this reality that we see that God is the great King, the great Father over all things, not fatherly to them in the sense of salvation, but fatherly to them in the sense of He has created all things. And then the point then is He created all things for His glory. And that's where then Paul looks at this. He says the idea of that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. He is not suggesting... Notice how He moves away from this posture of all of creation both seen and unseen, to now speaking very specifically about, this is what I'm praying, that that God would actually do this in you. This specifically. And what is He asking to be done? He's asking that we would be granted power to strengthen us. The power that is to come to us by the Holy Spirit. What I want you to begin to think about is this notion... How has the Bible begun? How do we see the story of Scripture start off? In the beginning, God creates. And what's the first thing we see? We see the reality of His glory poured out into the creation by what means? By the Spirit who's hovering over the creation. We see that progress onto where a temple is created and what happens? The Spirit is poured out in glory around that temple, so much so that people are driven out and down because God's glory is... But where are we seeing that glory? Through the Spirit. But then we see the reality of the glory of God in the face of Christ because the Gospel of John tells us that it's in Christ that God shows His glory. The glory is of the one and only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. So what we see is throughout Scripture this reality that God continues to pour out His glory upon the earth through the means of the Spirit and the Son. And if you look at this verse, what's happening here? He says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What he's ultimately getting at, what Paul is really requesting, is that the power was, would be, that was granted to him to preach the gospel 
in Ephesians 3.7, if you go back and look at that, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power, that that power would be seen in the lives of every Christian person. 1 Corinthians 2, 2-4 says this, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with Full conviction. So Paul prays that these, that the Father in heaven would bring the reality of the Spirit into the lives of human beings in such a powerful way that they would be strengthened. And the reality of that is that they are indwelt by Christ. Now more about that in just a second, but I want you to notice before we move too far away from this, what Paul is really saying. Paul is praying as one who's convinced that God is good and generous. And I want you to see that. I want you to see that he prays that God, out of the riches of glory, would give to his people, not because he's saying, Lord, gee, I hope that you'll be nice, that you'll play good for a change with your people. It's rather, he's so convinced of God's goodness, so convinced of God's generosity, that he says, Lord, don't give us just a little bit out of the riches, but give us according to your riches. Give us overflowing abundance. Because you promised to do it. See, that's the real power of prayer. It's not praying that God will give us something He hasn't promised to give, but rather that we pray with earnestness that God will do exactly what He's promised to do. And that is, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. I will do that. And indeed, Paul says, I'm praying that what you've been doing and what you've promised to do will be a reality in your people, individually. Remember, Paul continues to talk about the corporate reality, and he's going to go right back to that in just a minute, in a few verses. But right now, he's really focusing in on that each individual person would know and experience the power of God strengthened in the inner man so that they would know that they are indwelt by the true and living Christ. None but those who are indwelt can do what the hymn writer said, right? None but those who know the love of Jesus can really know the love of Jesus. It is that reality that Paul prayed. He's basically building this ladder, if you will, saying, look, this is what needs to happen. The outpouring of the Spirit in such great measure that these people's inner being is so strengthened that the reality, the glory of heaven is able to manifest itself within their person. Now, I'm trying to give you some technicalities here, and I've got a few other things to say here that we need to think about so we don't get confused about what does he mean by the inner man, but I don't want you to lose sight of that big picture. Do you understand that the Gospel is telling us, what Paul is praying in light of the Gospel, is that you be filled with Christ, that He permeate you, that the glory of heaven that was seen in the Spirit in the Old Testament, that was seen in the person and work of Christ during the time of the Gospels, that that reality would take root in you and be overflowing in and out of you. Now that's an incredible prayer. 
Hang on just a second. I want you to think about this. And Paul prays that this strengthening would equip us in the inner man or the inner being. What does he mean by this? That's a fair question. Rather than write my own definition, Charles Hodge has a great one, so I'm just going to read you what he says, but it's profound. By the inner man, therefore, in this passage, it is not to be understood the soul as opposed to the body. It's not what he's talking about. He's not the inner man as opposed to the body. Or the rational as distinguished from the sensual principle. It's not that our rational selves versus our experiential or feeling selves. That's not what he's talking about either. But the interior principle of spiritual life, the product of the almighty power of the Spirit of God, as is clearly taught in chapter 119 of this epistle. We see this expounded by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 16 through 18. I won't let you turn there. We're going to turn to a few passages. But go ahead and turn there because this is powerful what Paul says there. And maybe this will give you an idea and an understanding of what's happening here. But I want you to think about this not so much in the terms of physical body versus unseen soul me. It's more of the reality of me that's being transformed versus me that's being sloughed off because it's of the old man. And you need to see that as an encompassing reality. I don't have time to go. This is so huge and so deep. I don't have time to say everything there is to say, but I just want you to begin to gather in and begin to comprehend the fact that we and our physical bodies are going to be changed. And our inner selves, we're being changed, both body and soul. It's all being transformed. And so ultimately we see the realities of what? The resurrection. The transformation of our souls into fullness of harmony with God and our bodies transformed into full, harmonious reality with God. That's what Paul is looking at here. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Read verse 6 and then we'll drop down to verse 16 through 18. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here we are talking about this manifestation of glory. And so what does Paul say? So we do not lose heart. And then drop down to verse 16. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is exactly what Paul is praying here, that people would be increasing, and by increasing degrees, being indwelt by the living Christ through the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of the living God and is the Spirit of Christ. We're told that. To talk about the Spirit being with you is to talk about that being the Spirit of the living God. It's to talk about that being the Spirit of Christ. So see, what Paul's praying is, is that you will be indwelt by the triune God as represented and manifested in us by the Spirit of Christ coming and being in us. What I want you to think about is this. I need to at least say this much so you grasp what I'm saying. If you think about heaven not so much as that place out there somewhere that we one day hope to get to, and more of the reality that heaven is all around us, we just can't see it, touch it, taste it, but it's all around us. Because see, heaven is the presence of God. It's where the glory of God is fully manifested. So wherever God is and His presence is, that is heaven. Heaven is a creative place. And so what I want you to think about is, is that when we're sitting in this room, that's why I said what I said earlier to you about when we confess our sins, heaven is all around us. We just don't have the capacity to taste it, see it, and feel it. 
But we get glimmers of it. We sense its presence. We know God is around us. We live and move and have our very being in Him. So you begin to think about your theology and now see what Paul's praying. Paul's saying, I want you to begin to become people who as you're being transformed, you're seeing more and more of the heavenly reality, at least in your inner person, so that you are looking more for the hope that lies within you than you are being caught up in these earthly troubles and problems that you see. That that's what's compelling you. That that's what's driving you. That that reality becomes more and more your real reality around you. And that what you're seeing is all these earthly struggles are just a means to an end. They are not the end. They're not what really is holding you. All these things are temporal but that which is lasting, you cannot fully see and appreciate. More on that in a moment. So what Paul is saying then is we need to see the glory of this. The Spirit who manifests the glory of God and Christ who manifests the glory of God have taken up permanent residence in the people of God. That's what it means to be dwelt. Paul is saying, I want the Spirit of God to take up permanent, lasting, will never leave, cannot be evicted, out of the people of God. That's what he's praying for. That the Spirit of God would dwell in us and that He would sink down roots into us in such a profound way that He will never leave. And we'd never fear His leaving us. That's the main point out of everything you take out of that first point. The manifestation of glory is that you have become greater than Solomon's temple. You, while you may have longed to have been at the manger scene, you have become the manger. See, that's what Paul's really praying, that you would be the habitation of the Holy One and His glory. That requires him to pray that we would be strengthened because how can any human being contain the glory of the living God except that He be there and strengthen us in the inner person? And so Paul prays that the manifestation of glory would be in us and growing in us. Now, why does he pray that? Well, because he wants us then to be seeing the realities of our need for love. So look what he goes on to say. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul begins to talk about love in two ways. His first part is he talks about it this way. Paul asked that we would be rooted like a tree, that we would actually take root. We'd be rooted like a tree, like a big oak, spreading out its roots. Or like in my case, the two big mesquite trees, and I don't care how hard the wind blows, it won't do me a favor sometimes and blow them over. They just, they're, they're there. The idea is that He wants us to be rooted in love. And the other word He uses there is a word of masonry, grounded, established on a cornerstone, on a foundation, that we find ourselves foundationally cemented in love. So He uses those two analogies, one of architecture, one of agriculture. Be rooted, be cemented in love. Why? Why is He, why is he wanting this? He wants us to be in this rich foundational soil of God's agape love. 
This love which has been revealed to us in the person and work of Christ. You can go to 1 John 4, 7-10 through 10, where we're told what love looks like. Love is manifested this way, that the Son of God would come and take on human flesh, would die a death you deserve, would live a life you should have lived but can't, so that you might be saved. That's how love has been manifested to us. And poured out into our hearts, we're told in Romans 5, that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays this because without this, we could not hope to love God or our neighbor. Do you understand this? If you're not rooted and grounded in love, what does it mean to you then to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? You're doomed from the start. You could never do that unless you were rooted in the love of God to start with. It's out of God's love that we love, the Apostle John tells us. We love because He first loved us. We love out of His love. So the first thing Paul wants to say is, now that Christ has come, I want that love of His to root in you and you to be rooted in it, grounded in it, cemented in it, so that what you do and your actions are rooted and grounded in love. So that what you do is you pour out of God's wealth into the lives of other people and back to Him. We're pouring out the wealth of God back to Him and we're pouring out the wealth of God to one another. Grounded and rooted in love. Paul prays that this would be a reality in the life of his people. This strength which Paul has prayed for would also be necessary for us to comprehend the vast infinitude of Christ's love. Listen to what John Stott says commenting on this. It seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him up to heaven. This is what Paul expounds in Romans 8, 35-39 when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as is written for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand that that's why Paul began this prayer? Father, the Creator of all things, the Father of all things, that none of your created stuff can separate your people from your love. So we need to be grounded in love, but now Paul says, I pray that you'll be able to comprehend the vastness, the vastness of Christ love for you. The vastness of God's love for you that we see in Christ. Paul's prayer is that we would know this love experientially. What he's not saying here in this, in this verse when he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, what he's not saying is he's anti-knowledge. You cannot read the Apostle Paul and think that he is not for knowledge. He constantly prays that we would grow in our knowledge. We would understand. But here what he's saying is this is so much bigger than anything you can fully get a hold of. So what he prays in that verb, he says that you would comprehend. That verb actually means to grasp, to clasp into. That somehow you might just catch something of it. That you would sink into it experientially. Even if you can't fully understand it, you know it to be true. It's all around you. It's the very air you breathe. It's how you operate and understand life. 
So what Paul's praying is that the love of Christ, which transcends and surrounds and encompasses everything, would be that thing which you are most sure of. Christ loves me. That's what we need to come to a place of understanding. We need to just be able sometimes to say, like a little child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, what Paul's saying is, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in that love so that you might begin to even comprehend what that means in some small measure because it is so big. It is so infinite. It is so beyond us to comprehend how the Son of God would deign to come and be one of us to redeem any of us. You can't begin to fathom that kind of love. It's beyond you. And so Paul says, I pray that even though it's beyond us, would you make us know it experientially, even if we can't fully comprehend it in our rational being. And then thirdly, Paul then prays this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which ultimately now this has been the goal. He's basically said, look, would glory manifest itself in you? Would the all-encompassing love surround you so that this would take place, that you would come to a place of what I'm calling consummational fullness? A new word, I probably made it up. I'm sure my computer was having a fit. It was blinking at me. That's not a word. That's okay. Consummational fullness is what Paul is looking for here. We now come to answer the question why Paul has prayed all this. He desires us to be fit for heaven. He desires us to be able to enter into the unseen. And so He is at work in us. Paul is praying that this reality would take place in us. Paul has drawn us into a Trinitarian focus of the Father's concern to strengthen us by the Holy Spirit so that the person of Christ might indwell us and His work might be effectual for us and His benefits applied to us. Paul prays that we might grow into the fullness, filled up to the full is what he's saying. I want you to be overflowing with the reality, with the perfections of God. See, that's why I began with that whole understanding of this love needing to be permeating through us so that we can love God and love our neighbor. What Paul is saying is, I want that reality. I'm praying that all the things necessary to enable you to be what God has called you to be, when he says, be holy as I am holy, when he says, you have to be perfect like me, what Paul's saying is, Lord, I'm praying that you would pour out that reality into these people that day by day, Week by week, month by month, more and more of them is becoming like unto you. That your perfections are being poured into them so that there's less of them. It's almost like saying what he's praying is that the reality of what John the Baptist... I must decrease that he might increase. What Paul's really praying is, Lord, would the reality of the Godhead transcend the sinfulness of that person so that they are less them and more what you intend for them to be. An illustration a representation, a fullness of the perfections of God that your glory might permeate out of them to all the earth, to all the universe. It would be a shining beacon of the glory of God, which is what heaven ultimately will be like. Imagine seeing all of us, and when you look at us, all you see is this beaming of heavenly glory all around you, coming out of us, flowing around us. 
It's just this permeation of the greatness and the reality of God. Owen used to talk about heaven saying that heaven would be this. It'd be us basically getting walking into heaven would be us looking up and God revealing one more illustration of His infinite perfections of which we fall down and worship only to lift our heads back up and Him to reveal something newer about Himself that we didn't know before. And that all of eternity is this great praise, this resounding of this God who is bigger and more incredible and more awesome than any of us have ever begun to imagine. Paul is praying that the reality of Jesus' prayer in John 17:26, where he prays that he has poured out his love in us, that we would pour out our love into one another. See, that's when Paul says this will be realized in all the saints. This is where the church part comes back in. I've talked about this individually. This is where all the saints come in. You'll never know this without one another. This is why you're so important. Every person in this room is important. Ethan is important because there are aspects of the love of God that we see because Ethan is in our midst. Because Alicia is in our midst. Because Bruce is in our midst. What I want you to see is it requires all of us to be able to see the realities of the love of God because glory is being poured into us. Love is surrounding us so that it might be filled up to overflowing forth from us. Much like a stream flowing in the desert. And what I want you to see, men and women, is that this reality that Paul's praying for is what our own Savior prayed for us in the high priestly prayer of John 17. And that Paul ultimately, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to turn there though to 2 Corinthians 3.18. I think this is what Paul is after as he prays for the Ephesians here. He says this, Let no one deceive himself, if, excuse me, that's 1 Corinthians I apologize. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see that what Paul's praying is, is that what happens, is, he's praying that what's actually happening would continue to happen. That we, as we see and look at God's glory with unveiled faces, because the gospel has opened our eyes, we continue to move into a deeper awareness of heaven, which is the glory of God. That we would continue to move forward into that reality. We see only in a mirror dimly. As we conclude, we, Paul tells us we see in a mirror dimly. There's still in some ways, we, we begin to see it, but we can't fully see it. But we know, men and women, boys and girls, that one day the visible will give way and the invisible will become the visible. And we will look at this created world and this created order transformed because the heavenly reality will have been opened to us. And so all that we have been living with, with it being there and we know it's there and we sense it's there and we can feel it's there, the reality will be removed. The veil will be completely gone. And we will experience it. We will see it in full. We will see and feel the glory of God, the power of God, and the love of our triune God. And if you consider that, really, this morning, does it not in some way cause you to want to bend the knee? Say, thank you. Thank you. 
for all that you've done. Make this a reality. And we pray that in our midst this day. Amen.